Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Leslie Cohen-Rubery, a licensed clinical social worker with an MSW as well as a master's in special education. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danny. Glad to be here. I'm so pleased that you're here. And I I feel a little bit abashed as if I took advantage of your professional credentials (sighs) by really loading today's episode with pretty thorny and difficult questions. So I I suppose I want to begin with a a sort of minor apology of um, both thank you for bringing your professional credentials to bear. And I also realize you are not in joining me here, giving advice to people uh, using your professional credentials. You are not doing this in your capacity of your professional work, um, simply that I am grateful to you and your expertise. And I hope that also just as two human beings, we will be able to talk about possible options available to all of these people. Yeah, that's fabulous. I mean, it is, even as a therapist and 37 years of experience, it's amazing how the mental health and the well-being of humans is complex mm-hmm. and a big, you know, as you said, thorny topic. So ready to dive in and, you know, definitely we'll, uh, we'll see what we, what, what comes out. Yeah. And I think actually now that I look at it, you asked me right before we started the show, um, whether I ever look at a question and then read it again before I go on air and sort sort of feel struck by a totally new response or a new set Mm -hmm. of priorities. And I think I just had that experience with our first letter, which um, I realize there's a sort of paradoxical freedom here because essentially what this letter writer needs is just legal expertise. This is a purely legal concern and neither you nor I are a lawyer. So th- there's exactly. the sort of relief here of really our answer is just going to be embroidery upon talk to a mm. lawyer, talk to a lawyer, talk to a lawyer. <laughs> right. So that's kind of nice. It lets us a little bit off the hook. Um, we can also talk about some of the fears and anxieties that might be coming up and encourage the letter writer to sort of think or talk about them in certain ways. But really the answer here is just going to be take this to your lawyer. Yes, yes, yes. So the subject is anxious surrogate. Mm -hmm. I have the amazing opportunity to be a pregnancy surrogate next year for two friends. We would like to use my eggs and anonymous donor sperm, so I would be the legal parent upon birth, and my friends would then adopt the child. However, I am terrified that my parents will sue for custody of what would be their, quote, first grandchild. My parents are wealthy, kind of homophobic and transphobic. My friends and I are all queer and or trans. And my parents place huge importance on blood relation. For example, when I myself considered adopting a child, they told me that, quote, adoptive parents and children can never love each other the way real families do. Obviously, I disagree, and I can't stand the thought of them taking a baby away from my friend's joyous and loving home. My friends and I are meeting with an adoption lawyer soon, but we may not be able to make a legally protective agreement before birth as the laws in our states either don't mention or criminalize traditional surrogacy. How do I assess the risk that my parents' fucked-up attitudes might translate into a legal battle? I am certain my parents would not be interested in an unrelated baby to them, but I'm not sure our finances or my body could sustain IVF with donor eggs. 
I could lie to my parents about the baby's genes, which I believe is unethical, but less unethical than a custody dispute. Any ideas are sincerely appreciated. Mm. Um, so I, I think really what struck me the second time around was that sentence about we might not be able to draw up a contract because our states either don't mention or criminalize traditional surrogacy, which right. struck me as, I don't want to say exactly putting the cart before the horse, but to me, that's the most important question here, way beyond, you know, the sort of like Kantian imperative of like whether or not it's okay to lie someone who would try to do something messed up, like if you're going to try to go ahead with a traditional surrogacy in a state where that's criminal, it, it strikes me as naive at best to say, well, we might not be able to draw up a contract and just do it anyways. Did, did that seem like the right uh, place to start f- for you? I totally agree with that. I also, yes, it it pointed to me to the fact that she's, that, you know, they are focused on their relationship with their parent. What is their parent going to do? And that was one question I had, which was, wait a minute, you're not, you may not even be in a position to legally do what you want to do. So the order of events here is interesting. It's questionable. And I just wonder where they have, you know, we're missing information. So I wonder what order that they have been thinking of in terms of what are they going to do when they become a surrogate? Yeah. Right. So she's going to, they're going to become a surrogate. And does she have an issue with it? Is it going to be legal in terms of the friend adopting the baby? Yeah. To me, that just seems like that's the first order of business. I'm not familiar of any United States that would ban, to me, this sounds like a pretty straightforward case of altruistic surrogacy, which is to say it's Mm -hmm. not commercialized. The friends, I mean, there may potentially be some agreement within the contract about, who pays or reimburses someone else for various medical expenses, but you yourself are not being paid for your surrogacy. You are volunteering to do this for your friends. And I'm just not aware of a state where that's illegal. The closest thing I could think of was there are some states that don't automatically uh, respect uh, sort of like contracts drawn up between two individuals uh, on the nature of commercial surrogacy. But again, so, so there's some questions for me there. I'm not sure that there's a state in this country where it is illegal for you to have a baby and then give it to a friend. But uh, really, that's just because I'm not a lawyer. Talk to the lawyer. If the lawyer says, yeah, there's really no way you could draw up a contract and be a surrogate for these people in a way that would protect any of you legally, in a way that would enable you to later um, forfeit your parental rights and enable your friends to adopt the baby, I got to say at that point, my advice would be don't do it. Um mm-hmm. And it's just because if you're not able to legally protect your family, and and I'm including your friends here in this, then you're putting yourself in a really dangerous position. And it would be much, much better to consider other options, even if those other options, you know, were sad or difficult. Just, yeah, meet with a lawyer, bring these questions to them. And if the lawyer says, sure, I could draw something up, but the state wouldn't recognize it, go to plan B. Yeah. And and slow down a little bit so that what you're doing, even when it comes to what your parents would do. If we slow the process down, I recommend to our letter writer that, you know, slowing the process down, if at all possible, mm-hmm. slowing it down to get some of these questions answered is going to put you on, you know, s- stronger footing and more grounded so that they know how they are going forward and with that sort of wise mind, you know, like 
They know what they're doing. They're doing it and they've got a reason and they can stand behind it, which is going to help any conversation that happens further down the road with their parents. Yeah. And it's just because there are so many different ways that things can go wrong or complicated in a pregnancy or the way things can change from an idea of being a surrogate into, you know, what if you go into uh, and have complications in your pregnancy? What if Mm -hmm. it's emotionally more fraught than you thought it would be? What if you were to experience um, postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis? I don't say any of this to like put the fear of God into you just to say, I think there are very, very good reasons to want and need clear legal protections, responsibilities, moments of who becomes the parent of what um, that are not just enforceable by, I promise I'll do this, because mm-hmm. the the potential for catastrophe, if there are not those legal protections in place, and then you get to that moment of giving birth and thinking, oh my goodness, I no longer feel the way that I used to about this child, it could go so badly for all of you. I just think Surrogacy is a situation where good intentions are not sufficient protection for all the parties involved because the stakes are high, desires and feelings run high, and there's so much that you can't anticipate about pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And it's just that. It's that emotional, there's an emotional, passionate, you know, hot, intense feeling that we even hear in the letter when they're talking about their parent and the fucked up attitude and, you know, there's some strong feelings there. And um, I just wonder if there's a strong emotional desire, intention, um, good intentions to to do good for the friend, for, you know, feeling like this is what you want to do to contribute, you know, to making the world a better place. And as you said, the good intentions are not enough to protect you from potential, you know, the potential downsides of what can go on in a, in a surrogate pregnancy, in any pregnancy, there's, um, it's so questionable. And, you know, I don't know if uh, I would start by recommending, besides a lawyer, I know this is more expense, but getting some therapeutic support, getting um, someone who is trained in this area of surrogacy, surrogacy in terms of, um, understanding the dynamics. What is it like to give up her first child? It's not just the grandparents' first parents' first grandchild. It's also her first child. Birthing her child is, you know, there's, even when it goes well, has a lot of, has a lot of emotional connection and upheaval. I know for that reason, there are some, um, uh, like organizations or companies that work in surrogacy that require a potential egg donor or surrogate parent to have already previously gone through a successful pregnancy, I think partly to like uh, stack the odds, but also experience it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, none of that is to say we just think no matter what, you'll change your mind the second you give birth. I'm not saying you don't know your own mind or that you can't um, reasonably enter into such a contract, just that the the contracts are really, I I think, pretty crucial to act as um, just necessary limits on making something possible. And actually, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, just some very, very low-key Googling has suggested that um, the state of Michigan forbids all surrogacy agreements, whether compensated or otherwise, um, and that it is a, apparently a felony to enter into such an agreement. So, uh, again, still not a lawyer, still not saying uh, take this as, as gospel truth, but apparently there is at least one state um, mm-hmm. that actually bans those agreements. And man, oh man, letter writer, if you are thinking— since the state bans these agreements, we'll just do it off the books. Please do not do that. I mean, first of all, I'm sure there is no 
company that would be willing to do that for you. I hope not. But second of all, that would just be unbelievably risky and and bad for all three of you. I, I would not suggest that you do that. So mm-hmm. all of that's to say, figure out your your legal possibilities before you worry about any of the rest of this. Again, take these concerns to a lawyer. I'd be really surprised if there were any situation whereby grandparents could take away custody from you. You know, the, the, the cases where grandparents get custody of children, it's usually because the child has already been taken away uh, from from their parents through CPS uh, or mm-hmm. the, the state has declared the parents unfit or neglectful or abusive. And the grandparents in question have an ongoing relationship with the grandchild. There's not an intrinsic right to custody as grandparents in this country. Some states have like visitation rights for grandparents, but usually that's based on a pre-existing relationship and the best interests of the child. There's no state where, for example, you are forced to introduce your parents to your child. Um, that's that's not how the law works in this country. Again, he says very much not a lawyer. Go talk to a lawyer. <laughs> Double check that one. But I'm I'm pretty sure as a lay person about that. Yeah, that's I agree. It's it's sort of like you want to open all the doors of potential problems just so you're prepared for them if they come that way. And you've named so many of the potential problems and you will feel, speaking to our writer, you will feel so much better if you actually look at the things that could go wrong. Because not to say that they will go wrong, but that once you've looked at them and prepared for that obstacle, then you get the obstacles out of the way if it's possible to get them out of the way. And if they're not, that's good to know. Right. And and I think it would just be really fine to say, like, guys, if we can't do this with legal protection, you need to find another person who lives in another state or something like that. I, again, that is like a loving, reasonable thing to say. I understand you might feel like I would do anything to make my friends happy, but that is where sometimes I think we can get blinders on, especially when it comes to stuff like having children. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got to be able to kind of say like, there needs to be some basic sanity and safety here. And one of them is if my friends say, no, 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 let's do it off the books anyway, run, run away from that situation. Don't do it. Beyond that, if you feel like if I ever were to get pregnant for whatever reason, I would want to lie to my parents. Again, you know, it sounds like maybe what's coming up there for you is just how much do you want your parents in your life? How much do you want them to know what you're doing? Because it sounds like they kind of just rain down really hostile, judgmental opinions upon you unasked. And this might be a good opportunity to sort of reevaluate. Do I like telling them about my life? Do I enjoy our relationship? Do I want to be less close to them? And and again, those are decisions that you can all uh, weigh regardless of what choices you do or don't make about surrogacy. Yeah, because being in the queer community, if her if they have experienced invalidation from their parents, that's just coming up in a bigger way with this surrogacy question. Mm-hmm. But I bet once you take away the surrogacy question, you still have parents that may be invalidating. And there's a lot to work on in that relationship. I feel like, If we look at this letter as please get legal advice for the question you're asking, and then what I hear is a maybe a different question about how do I go forward with these parents of mine who feel very invalidating to the way I live my life, the choices I make, the decisions I make. That's a big question. That's a beautiful question for you to be asking yourself in terms of um, being in an invalidating environment, a chosen family community or working with uh, your parents on creating more of an invalidating environment rather than invalidating. And they may not be aware of that. 
Uh, they may say things that they are truly not aware of, but we don't know that. Yeah. And I, I share that sense of like, the, I think the letter writer's kind of underlying question is, I might someday choose to adopt. My parents have already made it really clear they would think that child was essentially not family to me. That would be really painful. I already mm-hmm. have these queer friends, chosen family in my life who I consider part of my extended family. My parents don't believe in that either. Um, and again, I could imagine a number of different responses to that. One of them might simply to be to say, you know, my parents and I don't share these values. I might want to limit how much they repeat themselves because it's frustrating and painful, but I don't need them to share my values. I'm okay keeping them slightly at arm's length or just saying, we agree to disagree. That's fine. I I could see that being one option, or I could see it saying like, actually, this is devastating to me. I hate this. I don't Mm -hmm. want them in my life. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to let them know either they need to change and stop saying these things, or we can't really have a relationship. That would be okay too. But again, all that sort of secondary to the immediate question, which is, should I pursue a surrogacy in which we cannot provide ourselves with like legal protections and a contract that the state recognizes? And my answer to that is just don't do that. Don't put yourself in that position. Mm, I'm with you on that. And it's hard, of course, because it just feels like it should just be simple. I love my friends. I want to help. I think I'm in a position to help. I should be able to. But, you know, anytime you hear about a surrogacy that turns up in case law, it's never good. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. not worth the risk, I think. Right. And there are so many times we're in a position where we want to do things because a love of our friends or just that emotional pull. It's such a strong pull. Um but that may not be so wise-minded or may yeah. not be in our best interest or in the other person's best interest because getting into a legal battle and then and then dealing with that is that you got to really question whether or not that's that's worth it. Right, right. So good luck, letter writer. Please do yes. have many, many conversations with at least one lawyer and um, feel free to write back if you have any updates in the future. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think we're ready for our next letter. Uh, And if you wanted to read that, I'm ready when you are. Sure. This subject is called Shaken and Confused. I don't really know if there's a right way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I'm a 20-year-old woman, and when I was 16, a high school teacher attempted to force me to perform a sex act for him. I said no, and he hit me so hard in the stomach he knocked me down, and he shook me by the shoulders. He then told me to get out of his class and never tell anyone or he would, quote, finish the job, end quote. I had no friends to turn to and I was terrified, so I never told anyone. Now this terrible secret is tearing me apart. It's been four years and I want to tell my mom what happened to me, but I really don't want to answer a lot of questions that will make the trauma feel worse. How can I tell her what this man did to me? Mm. Man, I mean, I just feel for this letter writer. Yes, yes. I totally want to start with validating the bravery, the fact that she wrote you this letter. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just want to say to you, letter writer, 
how brave you are and that you are, you've taken the first and one of the hardest steps to, um, to your healing because you have decided no longer, even if it's just so painful for you, you've decided no longer to hold the secret. And that is brave and that is wonderful. And that is, you know, the, what's so important in this horrible situation of, of abuse, sexual assault, an attempt of sexual assault, uh, mm-hmm. and a, a and violent a physical assault, yeah, a physical assault, and then a threat to your life. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things can be very; um, they are traumatic, they are tragic, and whether or not it has turned into PTSD is one of the questions that I have in my mind as a trauma therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she held it a secret is brutal. But to directly go to the question of, I want to tell my mom, there are people out here, out besides yourself, including your mom, that can be supportive and that can create a community of support and love for you as you go through your healing, Um, whether it's therapists, whether it's a sexual abuse uh, community or hotline, and your family. But if we're going to get to her question of, do I have to share the details? Uh, the answer is with a big no. So to start off by saying, no, you don't have to give the details. You can simply start to get that off your chest by saying, mom, something you know tragic has happened to me. Something, I'm fine. I'm here. But I want to share something with you. And I'm not ready to share the details. That's a perfectly fine way to start. I do believe that the next step is getting you into trauma therapy. And I could talk about that in a little bit. Very specific trauma therapy to help you heal. And then after your trauma treatment, you can then make a choice where you will feel either ready or still not ready to share any details. That's always going to be your choice. Mm -hmm. And you can get support even when you don't share the details. Yeah, I, I think that was my sort of first thought reading this too was I, w- I, w- I wished I could have asked a follow-up question or two of like, what what is it about how you're feeling now that makes you want to talk to your mom about it first? Right. And um, if the idea of talking to your mom and then if she does have follow-up questions, feeling possibly unable to say, I can't, like maybe the letter writer is worried. If I do tell her, I would feel so guilty or just so overwhelmed by her love and concern for me that if she said, oh my God, what happened? I wouldn't know how to say, I have to stop now. I would feel too um, implicated, too close to her pain, too desirous to make her feel better. Um, and so if that's a fear letter writer, I, I agree, you know, you can you can put your mom on the list of people you want to tell, but maybe put her third or fourth and think about how could I talk to a therapist? How could I potentially find a support group near me, either through my college campus, if I'm a college student, or just through like local resource centers, women's shelters, um, if if I'm not, um, and potentially a a you know a trusted friend, but who's maybe a step or two further removed from my high school experience, so they wouldn't necessarily know the teacher in question. They wouldn't necessarily have any of the same sort of um, common friends, and so I would feel a little bit more distance there, and like I could tell them and trust that they would feel sorrow for me, anger for me, support, concern for me, but wouldn't immediately necessarily leap to what are we going to do, which might feel overwhelming to the letter writer right now. And that way, once you've done one or two of those, you can move on to your mother, which isn't to say never tell her, just maybe if she feels too daunting, she doesn't have to be the first. Right. Because when a parent has such a big emotional reaction, 
you're dealing with so much emotion in yourself mm-hmm. that it's not that you don't care about your mother. As a matter of fact, that's why you're hesitant to tell her because if you tell her, you know that there's probably going to be a big emotional response and now it would be up to you. Maybe you would feel responsible to help her with those feelings. So I agree. Mom is, you know, maybe a person you want to tell and getting the other support so you can practice, so you can understand how you feel about it. You know, it's been four years you have not spoken about this. Mm-hmm. It's important to, you know, take it very slow, take it easy and get treatment that's that's evidence-based and that we know can help you. Yeah. And then to also, especially I think in a therapeutic context, to consider whether or not this is something, you know, do you want to tell your mother so that you can just get this off your chest and and have a, a point of closeness between you? Is part of you considering whether or not you want to tell your story on a more public level and or considering filing legal charges? Again, exactly. you don't say anything here. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't want to say you have to arrive at a decision before you decide to talk about this with the people that you love. But I would just invite you to give yourself some time and space in therapy to explore that possibility. And if you decide no, that's okay. If you decide yes, that's okay. Think about what you might need in order to do that. But again, just just to present yourself with that question and to think about why might I want to, why might I not want to, and to not put pressure on yourself of either, if I talk about this with anyone, I have to then go press charges. I have now a moral obligation simply because I was attacked. Um, I, I don't want you to feel like that's something that I'm trying to put before you. You are not under an obligation to file a report you don't want to file, but I do want you to know that you can if you want to, and you deserve support if you do. Yes, 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 yes. That's so, it's listening to your voice, which you have had to silence for the last four years. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, is that, and it's confusing. You may not know. And that is why support is so helpful and why the Me Too movement is such a powerful movement because the connection when people have been sexually assaulted, physically assaulted in any way, the connection is so healing and it allows you to know you're not alone. Yeah. So I agree that um, your, you have options out there. And like I said, you've opened the first door, but there are many other doors that you can decide. You will be able to decide through support or and on your own what you want to do slowly, going slowly. Yeah. And so I think my last couple of thoughts would be one is if as you have these potential conversations with a therapist or in the context of a support group or possibly with a friend, you know, you can also anonymize the story. You can tell the bare outlines without going into detail about whether or not this person was a teacher, if you feel like that would make you feel more secure. And you can also consider telling your mother in writing if the idea of having the conversation in person is too overwhelming. I think there's always a case to be made for having difficult conversations in person. So I don't always want to just say the written word should always substitute for in-person conversations. But again, just because you're feeling pretty torn apart and you're not sure what to do, if the idea of going into therapy is not one that you feel ready for and you think, nope, I just want to tell my mother, but I don't know how, you might consider putting some of this in writing, again, at whatever level of detail you're comfortable with and saying, I'm not ready to have a follow-up conversation about this right now, but maybe we can talk uh, and and discuss it a little bit more in a few days. Again, only if that idea sounds helpful. If that sounds like it would feel more tense, more stressful, by all means, don't do it. But sometimes it can be helpful to not have to use your words out loud. Great. I love those suggestions. Um, 
I just want to add that it is uh, sometimes she just might want the, um, you might just want that connection with your mom. Like you said, I want to tell my mom. You can also reach out by just saying, mom, hey, can you help me find a therapist? I'm going through some hard stuff. There's been some things that happened, you know, in the past four years that I'm struggling with, and I just need a therapist to work this out. I'm not ready to talk about it, but, you know, again, you can just ask for help in the most vague way as another alternative if you feel she's the person you need to turn to for finding therapy. You know, there are, and I'm sure uh, Danny can post these, there are some websites that, uh, you know, I can recommend for treatment that have therapists across the country so that if you want to find a therapist who specializes in trauma, then, you know, there are certainly many, there's websites you can go to. So yeah, that would be great. If you wanted to pass this along afterwards, I'll be sure to have my producer include them in the show notes. Um, I know I've said a couple of times my last thoughts and often I just keep saying that until I run out of thoughts, but I think this is my last set of thoughts. One of them is just letter writer. Sometimes if someone is thinking about talking about uh, assault or abuse that they experienced, if somebody else says, this is brave, this is courageous, it can feel false or odd or difficult to connect with. I don't know if that's the case for you, but I just wanted to echo what Leslie said. And I think sometimes, especially if you have been holding on to something for a while, it can feel uh, almost painful. Like I feel the opposite of brave. I feel like I shut down. I feel uh, weak. Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I don't want to say you must feel weak. But um, if there's a part of you that felt like that, that didn't land for me, hearing bravery in this moment, I don't feel brave. I just really want to echo you know, what happened to you. You were 16 years old. You didn't have friends. That's already an incredibly painful and isolated position to be in. And a teacher, a position like somebody, an authority figure, somebody who has the ability to, you know, hinder your graduation, to control your grades, who's supposed to be looking out for you, not only uh, attempted to sexually assault you, but hit you and threatened your life. That's terrifying for anybody. And and if your reaction was to think, I don't have anyone I can really trust to tell, I just need to hide and, and get away, that is such a, an understandable reaction. Um, and, and so I just really want to, if it's at all helpful, great. And if it's not, just ignore this. But if part of you feels like I don't feel brave or I, I feel pain or shame at having reacted the way that I did, I just think like your reaction makes so much sense to me um, to be struck and beaten at that level of violence by somebody who's uh, in charge of your care um, would just be overwhelming for for almost anyone in your position. And so again, that's not to say you must feel a certain way about it or you must not, just that if part of you is having trouble accessing, you know, this idea of, is it really brave? I think it is. Um, I, I think what happened to you is genuinely, genuinely like awful and dispiriting and was meant to make you feel demoralized, powerless, and afraid. And that's part of why it was so, so, so deeply wrong. And again, I just, I really understand that fear, especially if you have an otherwise good relationship with your mother. That fear is not, I'm afraid she'll react in a way that's like selfish or bad. It's like, I'm so afraid because my mother loves me so much that she will feel this as if it has happened like inside of her or it implicates her mothering of me or she'll feel so personally wounded at the fact that she wasn't there to protect me that I will lose my sense of self. I will feel so bad for her distress at my distress 
that we'll just both be two wounds and two wounds can't heal each other, can't set boundaries, can't look out for each other. Will will there be any difference or distinction between her person and my person? And if that's the fear that's kind of coming up for you, I really understand that. And I really can understand just thinking like, no, I'll just say in advance, I can't answer any questions would feel like saying, I'm going to go to the moon tomorrow by jumping really high. Mm-hmm. And and again, that doesn't necessarily lead me to say, and therefore, if you do this, this, and this, I promise you that won't happen. Just that I really, really get that. I really recognize and, and can relate to that anxiety about the good mother in that moment. Mm-hmm. Beautifully well, said, Danny. Well, you know, it's just, um, I think about mothers a lot uh, for, for sort of uh, obvious reasons. And so um, it's very much on my mind. I also just finished this morning reading L.P. Hartley's The Go-Between, which is mm. uh, an absolutely killer, killer book. And and it's still very, very much like ringing around in my head. I don't know if it's one you're familiar with, but... I'm um, not. I will definitely put it on my to-read list. If you know it, you know it from its opening line, which is, oh. the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Um, it's a novel from the early 50s, uh, sort of set in the summer of 1900. And it's this reflection of this 13-year-old boy who was sort of implicated as a messenger between this couple having an adulterous affair and sort of slowly comes to realize the degree to which he's being wronged by the adults in his life, but also sort of equally unable to think of the adults in his life as people who are capable of harming him. Mm. And then sort of later in adult life on reflection feels like he just totally withdrew from from his own life um, sort of as a result of that wound. Um, mm. And it's just absolutely like, you know, cut your throat beautiful and and restrained and um, really, really powerfully done. And so I'm just thinking a lot about that today. Wow. That's a powerful one. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I just, again, like both of our letter writers so far, I, they're just clearly like thoughtful, sensitive, loving people who are thinking really carefully and deeply about how do I express love? How do I ask for help? How do I get care? How do I tell secrets? Um, right. How do I ask for what I need? And I just want so much for both of them to get everything that they need and wish there was more that I could do than just say in, in a way that feels so flat, just sort of like, I like the way you sound. I wish you the best. It just, um, right. it I wish I could do more. Well, there's a book that speaks to a lot of people who have gone through traumas called The Body Keeps Score. And it's a book that many, many therapists read, as well as lay people, because it's written so clearly. It's by Bessel van der Kolk, and it's just a book on trauma that lays it out in a very uh, readable way that helps us understand that traumas can become frozen in our body. And that's why after four years, a, a letter writer may be still experiencing things inside that feel like it just happened yesterday. Mm. And so that's why I'm so strongly recommending trauma work because talking about the trauma in therapy is not trauma work. And it has we ha- we have, you know, studies that show that talking in and of itself is not enough to heal a trauma. So specific kinds of trauma work are very important. And this book lays out a number of uh, trauma treatments, but it's already, uh, there's actually new trauma treatments, including cognitive processing treatment, which I'll give you some information on, and prolonged exposure, specifically dialectic behavior therapy, prolonged exposure, among many others, EMDR, somatic experiencing, that are specific ways of moving what is stuck in the body. 
Mm. So it's very important for the reader to understand that there's a reason why it's it feels like it's tearing her up. Yeah. And I think, again, just uh, obviously I don't have any like specific resources I want to recommend off the top of my head, but just both to encourage the letter writer to look into anything that you think might be helpful. Feel free to, if something has been helpful to someone else, but does not help you to let it go, to, you know, put it down, to move on and try something else, I think is a, is a, the, the best sort of policy that I can get behind. Um, yes. And yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. I, I love it I too. I often find that like, depending on what novel I've been reading most recently, I'll just be like, and read Middlemarch. I think that'll solve a lot of problems. Or, <laughs> now it's an, and, and read The Go-Between. That might solve some problems or at least uh, make you feel enriched, um, yeah. which is not quite the same as uh, a modality. But, you know, what the, what's the worst that happens? You read a pretty beautiful book. It's amazing. Or taking a walk in the woods can sometimes, yesterday I saw a um, dragonfly come out of its little uh, chrysalis or pupa, whatever it's called. Oh, beautiful. And it was incredible. But that's that slow process, I watched it and I just slowly watched it. And here I am saying to both your readers, let's slow down. Mm-hmm. You could not rush that dragonfly. It was going to take it the time it needed. And both of these situations are so difficult. So Again, take your time. Mm-hmm. Take your time and do it in your way. That's nature can support us, you know, book, art. These are the arts are so incredibly important yeah. uh, to support us as we move through life. Look through, look for more chrysalises or chrysalis. Yes. What the plural of chrysalis is, but just <laughs> as a general rule to, to all of us. Well, I, I think we've done what we can here. And if you don't mind, I have a few quick updates or uh, responses from uh, listeners that I like to close the show with when I get a chance. And so I will read these now. Uh, the first letter is in relation to the candy cigarette chat in Mask and You Shall Receive. I thought you might like to know that there was a brand of candy cigarettes in Australia that until the 1990s were called fags, slang here, of course, for cigarettes. Now they're called fads and they have a cartoon of kids playing with them in ways that aren't pretending to smoke. Uh, that's truly, truly beautiful. There's nothing funnier to me than the sort of plausible deniability of, uh, yeah, these candy cigarettes, they're not for smoking. They're for uh, pretending you have a chalkboard on. Um, that's really, really lovely. And then another one that is uh, in response to the ongoing quest for folksy family sayings. My grandfather was from El Paso, Texas, and his favorites were uh, a month of Sundays to mean a very long time, as in, I haven't seen you in a month of Sundays. Hollering, I'll fix your wagon when roughhousing and saying I'm out of here like a herd of birds when leaving a function. (laughs) I've never heard these sayings from anyone else, but we all lived in the Bay Area by the time I was born and I've never visited El Paso. Maybe they're more common down south. I think so. I've definitely heard a month of Sundays and fix your wagon, uh, at least in like books and movies, if not a lot in person. Although out of here like a herd of birds is kind of cute and colloquial. But yeah, I would say those are um, not uncommon folksy sayings. Great ones. Yeah. Yeah, charming. And then uh, one last one. I just listened to the May 5th episode, Fairweather Friend Group. I don't often listen to podcasts, but this title drew me in. I'm not a college student, but a seasoned married adult with kids, and the same thing happened to me. My situation was not a planned surgery, but the onset of a chronic, debilitating illness and subsequent injury. Like the letter writer, I communicated my situation to my friends. The situation itself was fairly opaque, even to me, since it took years to get an explanation for a lot of scary and painful symptoms. I really needed my friends during this period for both physical and emotional support, 
But despite reaching out continuously to keep in touch, to give and ask for advice and ask for what I needed, lunches, help cleaning the house, rides to school for the kids when I had my doctor's appointments, my friend group, about 10 people my age and same station in life, all drifted away. In some instances, deliberately so, disbanding regular hangouts and group chats that I knew about and reforming them without me, and in other instances, just through passivity and indifference. This was several years ago, and because of my disability, I've had trouble getting out and finding another friend group, so I feel very isolated and alone now, aside from my immediate family. I'm not actually writing for advice. I just listened to what you and your guests said, and it felt validating to me to know that I really did everything I could to preserve those friendships. It doesn't make it hurt less, though, or make me and other people in my situation feel less alone. You seem to think that the group's age and lack of social finesse could be to blame for how they treated the letter writer. Based on my experience, I think I have a more cynical point of view. I think that we're forgetting how to care for each other as a culture, and it's terribly sad. It takes intention and attention to be a friend, to build a sustaining community. Listening to what people need and believing them, not assuming someone else is closer and more available to do a labor of love. This isn't easy for anyone, but if we could lean on each other and depend on more mutual support, it can at least be possible. So I will, you know, respect this letter writer and not give advice because they didn't ask for any and just say both thank you for sharing your experience. And also, I'm just really sorry. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you found the letter uh, and our conversation about it um, somewhat helpful or at least kind of seemed like it made you feel slightly less alone in that moment. And thank you just for sharing what you've been experiencing. Mm. Yeah, I always want to like put a little gloss on the end of it and like, and here's how we can all feel better because I like to end on like an up note. But I think it's also yes. important to just say sometimes things are hard and sometimes we lose people and sometimes that's sad and you don't necessarily have to turn that into a life lesson or, uh, you know, uh, an important moral. I appreciate that. Yep. Yeah. And if anybody has uh, any Australian fake cigarettes called fads that they want to send me or send me a picture of, please do. I would love to see them. Leslie, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I so appreciated your thoughtfulness and your care. uh, And I just hope you have a fabulous rest of your day. Same to you. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. Take care. Okay, you too. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Yeah, and my sense really in the, in the first paragraph especially was that the letter writer had thought when her friend brought up, I, I used to be anorexic in high school, oh wow, she's sharing with me something difficult from the past. I assume she's gotten treatment for it or she's in recovery now. And I can now like respond with a disclosure of my own, which is not a, like 
a diagnosed full-blown eating disorder, but you know, some something more than just a few bad habits, something destructive that I did in college and that eventually got better when my life sort of stabilized or when I was able to sort of cook for myself more in this sort of understandable belief that, oh, we both shared disclosures about the past that have brought us a little bit closer. When it sounds like actually what your friend was doing in that disclosure was seeking to make plausibly deniable jokes and references to ongoing sort of troubling relationships with food, calories, and hunger into your friendship now. So she sort of felt like, oh, great, now we're off to the races. Now I can sort of make, I I don't know, sort of like gallows humor joke about like, oh, I want to eat, but I don't want to eat. Or let's go to a bakery and look at the calorie counts and then leave. And so now she feels like this diet talk is one of the ways we can be close with each other. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.